I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, your companero and co-host. <laughs> I'm Dean Detloff, your companero and co-host. Oh, all right. That's pretty good. Hey, uh, speaking of comuneros and companeros, <laughs> man, Spanish is not anything I should be trying to do. Um, this week on the show, we've got Austin Gonzalez, who is a member of the DSA International Committee, uh, he's also a, a, a member of the DSA NPC, and he's running for DSA NPC again, in case that's a thing that you're interested in. Um, anyways, the thing about Austin that you got to know is that he just got back from Venezuela. He was there. He met Nicolas Maduro. He gave him a big fist bump or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, pretty cool, though. And he also uh, uh, you know, saw the communes and went to a, a big leftist conference there. And you'll hear him talk all about it on the show. It's a, a pretty neat conversation, to say the very least. Yeah, we have also done a bunch of other episodes about Venezuela in the past. If you're after that, um, about a thousand years ago, we did an episode with George Chikare Omar talking about uh the, the communes, and then more recently, in the last few years, we've done a number of episodes with Jim Hodgson, who used to work at the United Church of Canada, doing all kinds of really interesting stuff, including uh, going to Venezuela as an election observer. So if you want more Venezuela content, it's back there in the archives, but really glad to have Austin tell us a little bit more about what's going on right now on the ground. Uh, let's take it over to Austin. This week, we're joined by Austin Gonzalez. Um, Austin, welcome to the show. Uh, whenever we have someone new on the podcast, we usually just start by asking them to introduce themselves rather than uh, us bumbling through it ourselves. So uh, yeah, do you want to say a little bit about who you are and what you're all about? Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me to the show today. Really happy uh, to be here and very, very happy to talk about uh, the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, so a little bit about who I am, why I'm on this podcast, right? Uh, well, my name is Austin Gonzalez. I am a Virginia-based organizer of Puerto Rican descent. Uh, in particular, I've organized within DSA, that is the Democratic Socialists of America, for, goodness, almost about five years now. Um, I helped co-found uh, what would become the Richmond, Virginia chapter of DSA back in 2017. Um, a couple years later, uh, I would get elected to what's known as the National Political Committee within DSA back in uh, 2019. The National Political Committee being the highest governing body of DSA between convention years, that is. 
Um, it's through my work on the NPC that I've been, gosh, honored, I, I suppose, privileged, maybe I might even say, to to engage in such a, a important work, such as the work I've done on the International Committee, which I know we'll be talking a, a little bit uh, about today, but I'd also be uh, remiss without discussing the work I've done on our mutual aid working group as well, and some of the other uh, committees and working groups that once again, I've had the honor of working with uh, in DSA. Uh, but once again, that's uh, primarily uh, my background. And, and once again, what, what brings me here and specifically that that international work is my is without a doubt uh, my my pride and joy, I suppose. Yeah, that's great. It's been really exciting, I think, to watch those conversations unfold in DSA. I, I'm in Canada, so I'm not a, a DSA member, but very heartened to um, to see all that going on. Uh, so excited to learn more. Recently, you got to go with a, a DSA delegation to a conference in Venezuela, and you toured a bit of the country. You met uh, Nicolas Maduro. You saw some communes. It looked like a wild time, uh, kind of living vicariously through you all. And we want to hear about that. Uh, we've done some episodes on Venezuela in the past and Christian solidarity with uh, the people of Venezuela. But before we uh, dive more into the country and, and the specifics, could you just say a little bit about why you were there? Absolutely. So, yeah, I <laughs> just being totally upfront, I could probably talk about this subject and the things that our DSA delegation did in Venezuela for at least five hours, right? So I will do my best to uh, condense uh, some of the different things we did, and in particular, uh, condensing this answer here. You know, what, why we were there. You know, what what is the, what event uh, were we uh, attending? That is, well, our DSA delegation was invited to attend uh, what's known as the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples. What is that exactly? Well, the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples uh, was an international gathering, an international conference, right, that the uh, Venezuelan government put together celebrating the 200th anniversary of Venezuelan independence, specifically the 200th anniversary of what's known as the Battle of Carabobo, which was led by Simon Bolivar and Jose Antonio Paez, um, which was the battle that essentially guaranteed uh, Venezuelan independence. Since this is, of course, an event that's very important to people within Venezuela, and I would argue an event that's very important to people throughout the Americas and even throughout the world, right, since uh, Venezuelan independence and the struggle against the Spanish Empire was objectively a good thing, I would argue, right? This led to the abolition of slavery in Venezuela and throughout uh, northern South America. So once again, just an objectively good thing. Uh, this gathering uh, was, um, once again, the... The Venezuelans sent out invitations to organizations across the world, right? You know, we were there when when we when we actually were able to participate in this conference. Once again, you know, I got the breadth and uh, and the scope of just how many people were there, right? Hundreds and hundreds of delegates from North America, obviously, from South America, obviously, also from Europe, from Africa, from Asia. Literally, people from leftist parties, socialist parties, leftist movements, right? Workers' movements from across the world. And, and once again, it was just so beautiful to have us all in, in one space together, sharing ideas, networking, uh, which was the, the primary goal here for, for our DSA delegation, right? To go down there for this uh, Congress, the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples of the World, as it, was, as it was known, right? And meet other leftist movements, right? Not just within the Americas, but within the entire world, right? And and once again, just to be present in these spaces, right? You know, I think there's a, a specific duty. I would even say a specific responsibility for leftists or 
or socialists or progressives, whatever you want to call it, within the United States to be engaging with socialist movements and leftist movements across the world. And I think this this Congress in particular was a, a, a big opportunity for our organization to to do just that. So that was kind of the the reasoning of why we went down there. Right. And once again, just the, the historical significance of this event to to Venezuelans and, and not just to Venezuelans, but but really to the entire world. Yeah, absolutely. That rules. Um, man, the International Committee has been so exciting lately, kind of following that, that on Twitter and seeing you all go to Venezuela and um, and even into Peru. It's just been really cool to see those connections being made. That makes me, I think, really excited about the DSA and, and maybe what's coming in the future. So uh, really, really neat, really neat stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, a little bit more, I guess, about your trip to Venezuela then. You know, there's this conference you went to and that's great. Um, and, you know, we're here for it for sure. Um, but we we really want to hear about, I think, some of the other things in your trip as well. You know, there's like a, a lot to say about Venezuela and international politics, but something really compelling about the socialist project in Venezuela is obviously the communes and the communal councils. Um, so, you know, we've we've talked a lot about that on this podcast and about participatory planning in Venezuela. But since you've actually visited, I don't know, maybe you could just tell us what you saw. I think it'd be really cool to hear about your uh, experience with the communes. Absolutely. So something, gosh, first something that a lot of people got to realize is that the vast majority of the time that our, our DSA delegation spent down there in Venezuela was spent with the communes, right? Was spent meeting these, these comuneros, right? These communards, right? These, these people that struggle in these communes and really understanding their projects and really understanding, you know, what they do and the, the importance of their projects, right? I honestly lost count of how many communes we met with, right? We met with the Alexis Vive commune, right? Which is based in Benjitres de Enero, one of the most militant, you know, leftist barrios within Venezuela, right? We met with Otro Beta, another very prominent commune, right? We were able to spend some time visiting the the rural communes, right? Out in uh, the state of Ansoategui in particular, we were able to meet different communes. We, we spent time with river communes, right? <laughs> Which was an amazing experience in and of itself, right? Communes that literally devote their time to, to cleaning up, you know, rivers and, and, and trash there. And we were able to, to do that sort of stuff with them. Um, I'd say, you know, considering myself somebody who is in touch with the commune project or like somebody who considers himself someone that is knowledgeable about the commune project, you know, I, I learned so much being down there and actually meeting them face to face. My conception of the communes before I went down there was based around some of the more prominent or or famous ones, so to speak, right? Communes such as El Maisal, right, where they grow and process corn. Communes such as the the pioneros, right, the pioneers, who are like squatters that take over unused land. What I didn't truly grasp and didn't really understand until I actually was able to be there and, and meet with them and talk with them is that a lot of these communes they do everything right they do everything and, and there's various different reasons for that right it, primarily because of how crippled the state has become because of the sanctions and because of the blockade and that was a consistent theme that these communes would would talk to us about um but in part due to that um and in part due to just the nature of the the commune project right these communes do everything right almost every commune we went we went to they grow their own food they process their own food they make their own clothes. They clean up their communities themselves. They provide protection for their communities themselves. Uh, Comuna Luisa Casares in, uh, in once again in the countryside in Ansoategui. 
told us how they like you know they were working with other communes to create a communal city right and let me be very clear about what these communes are right or, or what they truly consist of uh these communes would tell us how like we'd be meeting with leaders of the communes who would tell us that these communes inco incorporate hundreds of families right these are thousands of people within these communes that we met with and this is truly grassroots you know worker power so to speak right this is not the state you know owning the resources in this area and telling people what to do no this is literally people from the grassroots from the ground up building this uh, their own society right and you know it's not to say that they don't occasionally come in conflict with like their local bureaucrats or somebody from the government they they definitely do and part of the reasons that that occasionally does happen is because once again i i really got a grasp of how they truly do fill the roles of the state right or they are gradually getting to a place where they are occupying the role of the state in their own you know backyard and we would talk to these communaires about you know the contradictions within the government right how how they viewed things right and i don't think a single person we talked to was just totally uncritical of the government right I don't think a single person we talked to gave us some sort of like canned line about how, oh yes, we love Maduro and blah, blah, blah. Every single person we talked to had a very nuanced view of their government, right? I think that can kind of get lost in, in the quote unquote discourse sometimes. Every single person we talked to would say something to the effect of, you know, we recognize that Venezuela is still a, a capitalist society, right? But Venezuela is a society that is building towards something beyond that building towards socialism right that's what that's what they're trying to build toward and recognizing the contradictions that we deal with within our government is an important part of that right of course our government's not perfect of course the government's not perfect we're dealing with a society that once again is still i mean in many ways is just escaping what hundreds of years of colonialism right hundreds of years of exploitation right there's a lot of contradictions within venezuelan society that that the, the socialist movement is, is just beginning to come to grips with, right? Does that mean we should throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Does that mean that we should isolate these contradictions and, and say that it's the fault of the government, right? The Comuneros certainly did not have that opinion, right? Once again, their opinions were very nuanced, which was, yes, these contradictions exist. The struggle to, towards socialism is very hard, but fundamentally, it is this government that supports our project, right? It is this government, it is Maduro himself who supports the communes in, in once again becoming a place that can, or becoming a communities that can self-sustain themselves, right? So though they come in conflict, con, excuse me, conflict with local bureaucrats or conflict with the government from time to time, so once again, it's a, it's a dance that they do, right? Because once again, they are building toward a socialist society and it's, it's not always easy. It's not always perfect. It's not always linear. But it's once again the, the work that they do is critically important and i <laughs> it's funny like i said before i went down there I, it's it's tough to truly grasp exactly what these people are doing and, and what these people are building you know in, in the united states or you know in the left and in, in the, the socialist world or whatever we want to call it we talk a lot about governments like cuba you know which are very heavy on like uh, state ownership right to me, the Venezuelan model is such a fascinating one that that more people would be benefited uh, learning from, analyzing, right? 
you know, that emphasis on, you know, worker self-management within the communes, you know, backed, of course, by, you know, a strong state that, you know, can help facilitate these sorts of things. Um, but once again, the, the communes themselves, I, <laughs> once again, I lost count of how many communes I was able to meet with because it, each experience was, was some, it's amazing. Each experience with a commune was like the most fulfilling and enriching experience <laughs> you could possibly imagine. And yet somehow when we would meet another commune, it would be just, it would be just as enriching and fulfilling, right? It, mm -hmm. It's, it's hard to put into words. It's so cool to hear you talk through that and especially drawing out the, um, you know, the contradictions and the, and the nuance of, of the way that uh, the, the people in the communes might feel toward the government. You know, on the one hand, um, they might have criticisms and like, I mean, who doesn't have criticisms of, of their own government? Um, but at the same time, you know, it was people like Chavez and Maduro that uh, that that incorporated the communes into the state uh, and, as like a political vehicle. So it, it makes some sense. You know, um, I think one thing that really floors me about the communes and something that I've read about it in books, like I haven't been there, obviously. Um, but like the communes, they they can expropriate private property like they own the means of production themselves. I don't know. Can you just tell tell us a little bit about like what that looks like? Absolutely. It's it's quite remarkable. Once again, just like you say, these are these are places where people literally own the means of production in many in many cases. Right. To me, it was truly seeing in in, you know, in face to face. Right. <laughs> And I hope this isn't too dramatic, right? But this is literally, literally seeing face to face the withering away of the state, so to speak, right? You know, in many ways, that's what it felt like. So, to this example, you know, in particular, like being able to, you know, expropriate land, I think once again, the the best example here is the the pioneros, right? The the pioneers, the squatters, right? This was the first commune that I was able to visit, right? And it was an amazing experience. We went into uh, one of the more urban areas of Caracas, right? In fact, this is one of the more wealthier areas of Caracas, believe it or not. And what we saw was, once again, lots that were once totally vacant, once totally vacant lots that were just land owned by rich people who basically did nothing with it, right? These pioneros, right, literally would occupy, or this is what they do, right? They occupy these sorts of unused plots of land and they start building houses on it, right? Now, what's amazing, and once again, the importance of having a government that backs this project, I think is a very good example in this case as well, which is the government, rather than looking at these people, these squatters, right? And saying, oh no, this is not your land, you gotta get off. The government, has a, a system set up where these people can, you know, apply for permits, right? They can apply for recognition from the government, right? And once they get that recognition, they then have government protection from, you know, some of the wealthy people within the area who do not want them on the land, right? And it's once again, it was just amazing to to walk through these houses, to to, to talk to the, the through to talk with these people, right? Who had once again built the this land from nothing, right? And for anybody who knows, um, Latin American history, really just general America's history, really the history of the world, dare I even say, right? It's that the struggle for, for land, right? The struggle for land use is, is critically important, right? I once again go back to the importance of this in Latin America because of how many, how much land is just unused in, in large estates, right? La latifundia, as they call it, right? And that struggle for, for land reform, that struggle for to turn these unused lands into product, uh, productive lands is so important. And you're absolutely right in, in stating that the communes are at the forefront of this struggle. 
And I think that's a critical component of, as I mentioned earlier, this this dance that the communes do with the government, right? Because they're not always totally in line with each other. They don't always get assistance from the government, right? Sometimes, once again, if you have a local bureaucrat who's worried about his power base being threatened, right? Or is, you know, has some sort of relationship with, you know, whatever, like the wealthy landowners uh, that are in their municipality might have issues with them, right? But fundamentally in these areas, like the Pioneros commune that I went to in Caracas, it is the government that is protecting them from the wealthy people that want them off this land. So once again, it's a good example of how there are, you need many moving parts to make something like this possible, right? You need a leftist government in power to make this possible. You need people on the ground struggling to make this possible, right? You can't have either of those things isolated in a vacuum, right? You can't just, you can't just have, uh, like, I obviously love Bernie Sanders as much as the next guy, but if Bernie was elected president, he would need strong people on the ground pushing forward, right? He would need people pushing, you know, any like bad senators, you know, Joe Manchin. We would need people in West Virginia, right? Struggling, you know, things like that. <laughs> you need people on the ground. You need all of it together, right? It all goes hand in hand together. And we can't look at these sorts of things um, in a vacuum. But we, but once again, yes, the, the government's support in these areas is critical for, for communes being able to actually expropriate that land and put it in the hands of the workers, right? Once again, this is not the state taking this land. It's the communes taking this land. It's the people taking this land. So I think there's tremendously important and valuable lessons to be to be taken from that. It's really cool to hear you talk about that some more. Like Matt said, I mean, we've read it in books. We've read some uh, some philosophers talking about it, right? We've talked to journalists. We've talked to people who've, who've been there and so on. But I think really the the most exciting thing is always getting a chance to um, to get those impressions of what it's like to sort of be around that energy um, one thing to uh, maybe just address the the elephant in the room, as always, is to talk a little bit about Maduro. And of course, you had a, an opportunity to uh, to not just meet with him, but uh, to talk about him and to talk uh, with other people about their experiences and uh, and to participate in this um, uh, meeting of peoples. So, you know, Venezuela is sort of a stock villain in anti-socialist rhetoric in the U.S., uh, you mentioned Bernie Sanders, even people like Bernie and, and AOC, they intentionally distanced themselves from Venezuela and Maduro. Uh, Bernie, I think, referred to Maduro as a dictator at one point during the last round of uh, primary debates. So having been to the country yourself, you know, what do you make of these kinds of pictures of Venezuela or the, the story that's told about it? Um, you know, did, did Maduro seem dictatory to you <laughs> when you met him? What's the, what's the vibe on the ground uh, about all of that? Sure. Very important question. And as you might imagine, a lot to unpack there, right? <laughs> I, think, I think two critical, well, multiple critical points come to my mind immediately, right? First, to the accusation that he's a, you know, a quote unquote dictator, right? I think it's important to to point out, and it's important to mention that uh, during the elections most recently, right, the opposition itself, right, the the opposition consisted of uh, some of the more liberal political parties like Acción Democrática or Copey, right, they themselves said that these elections were legitimate, right, that these elections were clean. Any observers watching these elections said the same, right? The reason the United States or some of the far right opposition led by Juan Guaido will say, oh, these elections were Ill illegitimate and unfair is because they boycotted them. Right. <laughs> and why did they boycott these elections? Because they knew they were going to lose or they, they couldn't risk losing. Right. They couldn't risk losing. Even if it might have been a close election, they could not 
take that risk uh, because it would be too damaging uh, to their narrative, right? So I think that's a very important point to, to make uh, from the outset. Another point I would make here, <laughs> going back to my own personal experience, right, in literally fist bumping him, right, and meeting <laughs> Nicolas Maduro, right? You know, I have to say, like, being <laughs> being in, in the room with him and uh, with the, the foreign minister and various different advisors, um, you know, and obviously this is just an anecdote, right? But still, you've got me on the podcast, so I'm going to give my anecdotes. <laughs> um, the, the environment was very relaxed. It was very chill. Like, they were making jokes with each other, right? There was anybody who thinks or has this impression that it's this weird, like, uh, we have to be, you know, calm in front of the dear leader sort of environment. That could not have been further from the truth, right? The translator was catching him on, on slip-ups from here and there, once again, joking around with him, busting his chops, so to speak, right? And and it wasn't weird at all, right? Everybody was was totally, totally chill, totally relaxed with it. It was a very friendly environment, dare I say. Um, but once again, that's you know just my own personal anecdote. As far as like conversations that I had with people on the ground, you know, once again, you know, it was very fascinating to talk to so many people, average working class Venezuelans, you know, comuneros, people in the communes, people outside the communes, right? Just average working class Venezuelans. And how many of them, once again, would, would say things to the effect of, you know, this government, yeah, you know, it hasn't always been, you know, perfect. You know, there've been some moves they've made that have, you know, upset me, you know, being, you know, a bit, toward the right when it comes to economic policy or, you know, maybe not doing enough to support, you know, the, the struggle for campesinos or, you know, the struggle for women's rights, you know, things of that nature. But fundamentally, it is Maduro that supports our struggle to, to get those gains, right? That supports our struggle to, to empower campesinos, right? That supports our struggle to empower the communes, right? We talk to many feminist groups, right? It, it, in fact, I should say it's amazing. Almost every commune we went to, maybe literally all of them, were women-led, right? Almost all of them, right? And, and when we would engage them on, on women's rights and, and feminist issues in, in Venezuela, you know, I think there's a, a particularly instructive anecdote that, uh, that one feminist leader told us, which is, yeah, you know, the, the revolution, right? It's been, it's been long. It's been hard. Women have been a part of it for, this, for such a long time, and we've been fighting for, for women's rights and getting abortion rights in Venezuela. Um, but unfortunately, what has happened is, you know, right as we were on the cusp of really beginning this uh, a dialogue here and, and making improvements here, this is when the sanctions and the blockade got cranked up to 11, so to speak, right? And because of that, now, you know, the party, right, the Socialist Party, the, the Socialist Movement in Venezuela, the conversation that they're having is primarily one of, can we foot food on our table, right? Can we have clothes for ourselves, right? Can we even have an, eco an economy that can function, right? The sanctions and the blockade have been so devastating that it makes it impossible for them to have any other sorts of conversations. And I even say to anybody who says, oh my goodness, you see Maduro's drifted to the right. He is a dictator, right? The Maduro regime, whatever, right? If you truly dislike Maduro, right, you should also be in favor of lifting the blockade and the sanctions, right? Because the blockade and the sanctions are once again a reminder to the Venezuelan people that there are outside forces trying to destabilize this government, right? That there are outside forces that don't want to see these projects succeed. 
So it's critically important, once again, I like to say to to listen to these people on the ground, right? Rather than talking over the feminist community in Venezuela or rather than talking over the working class in Venezuela and saying, oh, actually, I think I in the United States know better about your situation, right? We should see where the working class is at. We should see where the feminist movement is at, right? And everybody I talk, well, you know, for the most part, the majority, the vast majority of people I talk to were supportive of Maduro and his government precisely for those reasons, right? Because despite the fact that there are issues within the bureaucracy and despite the fact that there are right-wing elements within PSUVE that, you know, that drag their feet on issues such as women's rights, it is the Maduro government that is once again pushing these, that is in favor of pushing these struggles forward. In fact, I think an, an interesting anecdote, um, uh, going back to the, the meeting with Maduro that I think kind of uh, is an interesting window into this conversation as well, um, when I found out that our delegation was going to be meeting with Nicolas Maduro, um, one of our attaches uh, took me aside, says to me, hey, Austin, you know, tomorrow when we go back to Caracas, because we were still in the countryside at the time, he says to me, when we go back to Caracas, uh, we're going to have a meeting with the president. And, you know, I'm like, OK, this is interesting. You know, I had a feeling this might happen, but OK, that's fun. Um, my attache says to me, he says, the speaker uh, or the person that the president wants as the spokesperson is one of the uh, female comrades that we have within our delegation, right? Jen McKinney, who's, uh, I should also say, chair of the National Political Committee. Um, and he says to me, the reason that Nicolas Maduro, or well, one of the reasons that Nicolas Maduro would prefer Jen McKinney to be this spokesperson is because he recognizes how deep the machista culture is within Venezuela and thinks it's important you know, to have strong women leaders be, you know, as visible as possible, right? To try and break down those barriers of machismo that, that do exist deeply within Venezuelan culture. And perhaps, perhaps I'm going off at a tangent here, but one last point to, to this point that I'm making here is that, once again, as I said earlier, I, I think it's, dare I say, dare I use this word, I think it's un-Marxist, is that a word? I think it's un-Marxist <laughs> to isolate contradictions, right? To look at Venezuela's machista culture and say, oh my goodness, look how look how backward they are on abortion. Clearly, this is not a socialist government, right? I think it's very un-Marxist to isolate these contradictions that are, once again, legacies of hundreds of years of, 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 of exploitation, hundreds of years of colonialism by the Spanish, of course, in this case, right? I think it's very un-Marxist to isolate these contradictions and once again try to say, that this is means the government is you know somehow wrong or somehow backward or somehow doesn't know what they're doing right we, we should once again primarily we should make an attempt to understand why venezuela is like that and second and this is the number one thing once again we should listen to the venezuelan feminist community and listen to the venezuelan working class and what they think is the is the right step forward for venezuela um once again like i said i don't know if i went off on a tangent there but a lot of a lot of thoughts started to pop in my head as I started going there. <laughs> no, it's a good tangent. I'm here for it. I'm here for this great tangent. Um, <laughs> all about these, these uh, wild stories of Nicholas Maduro. Very cool. Well, um, I don't know. Now that you're back, I guess, uh, what, what have you taken away? Like what kinds of lessons about, um, I, I don't know, socialism or solidarity or whatever have you, have you taken back with you to the U.S.? Um, 
we've been talking a lot about uh, imperialism and solidarity on this podcast, and it'd be cool to hear you kind of parse this out. Like, what does it mean to be anti-imperialist and invested in solidarity and invested in this like relationship with people, you know, in a different hemisphere of the globe than we are in the heart of global capitalism, you know, in the heart of the place that's putting these sanctions on them? What does it mean to do anti-imperialism in that kind of space? Absolutely. Once again, a lot to unpack here, but once again, very important question, right? So like I said a little bit earlier, I think, and like you touched upon just here, right? I think there is a a certain duty, a a certain responsibility for us leftists in the United States to once again, be pushing for proper, you know, anti-imperialism and be to be pushing for an effective anti-sanctions campaign, an effective anti-blockade campaign, right? Pushing for the normalization of relations with countries like Venezuela, right? You know, even uh, this is uh, to me, the primary reason that I thought it was important for DSA, for DSA's delegation to meet personally with Maduro, right? Not to necessarily endorse everything that his government has done, right? But to once again, normalize talking with Nicolas Maduro, normalize, help normalize this government, right? Don't treat them like a pariah or like a boogeyman, right? No, we met with the president of Venezuela because he asked for a meeting, right? We didn't look at this as some icky, dirty thing that we couldn't do, right? And I think that's a a big responsibility that leftists in the United States have, right? I think we can have, um, I think (laughs) whenever we have a conversation on Venezuela or Maduro or even Cuba, right? Cuba's in the news, right? First, second, third, fourth, fifth concern should be ending the sanctions, right? Your The first and last con- concern for leftists in the United States should be ending the sanctions, right? Rather than finger wagging at leftists in the global south or finger wagging on, oh, no, I actually, I think we know how to do this better than they do, right? Of course, I would say maybe the left in the United States should try and get into government first before we try and tell other leftist movements who have actually been in government how to do it, right? But maybe that's just me. Um, I think... Uh, what I think about, once again, to me, that's one of the crucially important aspects of, once again, pushing for proper anti-imperialism, so to speak, within the United States, which is so important, right? I even like to say, I mean, not just me, right? Plenty of people say this, um, saving the environment. One of the keys to saving the environment is fighting the war machine, which is the number one polluter in the world, right? Our, our war machine here in the United States. There's a tremendous debt that we owe the rest of the world in fighting our military industrial complex and fighting the empire, right? To me, that should be one of our main priorities, right? A, a proper anti-war campaign, a proper anti-sanctions campaign, you know, all of those things. Now, you also asked a little bit about, you know, lessons that, you know, we can take back in general, you know, lessons that, you know, we might've learned within Venezuela. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons that I learned in in both trips, I should say, I was a part of the Peru delegation as well. One of the biggest lessons I learned in both Peru and Venezuela is just how important it is to, once again, be connected to your bases, right? Just how important social movements are, right? Just obviously the union movement is critically important, right? It's so important to be connected to your bases, to be connected to your communities, right? You know, it's so important to be connected to your communities, actually tied into your communities, and once again, pushing for social change through those avenues, right? That's how you can build a proper socialist movement, I would say, right? That's how you can get to a place where rather than trying to declare, oh, we are the the Democratic Socialist Party or whatever, right? Rather than getting to, you know, we can get to a place where we have proper social movements that could hold a party accountable, right? That could hold elected officials accountable. 
right? Which to me is one of the, the biggest lessons that I learned um, in places, in, both in Peru and Venezuela, right? How important that grassroots people power is, right? And another important lesson that I think socialists, leftists, progressives, whatever we want to call it in the United States or the global north or anywhere, you know, can you should know or, or can learn from Venezuela is that Venezuelan socialism is different from Cuban socialism, is different from Vietnamese socialism, is different from any other socialisms in the world, right? You got to adapt to your local conditions, right? Socialism in the United States will probably even look different from how it looks in these other places, right? I imagine it would, right? You got to adapt to your local conditions. And I think I almost, I, I relate that to the first point there, as far as like being in touch with the social movements and being in touch with your communities, right, is, is critically important. That's how you can properly adapt to your local conditions and see, you know, where the, the contradictions exist in our, in our society, right? And using those to, to, once again, bring the socialist movement forward, I think that's, that's, that's critically important as well. And that's been how the, the, the Bolivarian revolution has been able to happen, right? People fixate on Chavez, right? They fixate on Maduro. Now they fixate on the figureheads, right? Just look at Bolivia, right? People fixated on Evo, right? Oh yeah, Evo, the movements, you know, it's all about Evo, right? After Evo was cooed right out of office by the military, what happened? It was the people that brought Moss back into power because these movements are go way deeper than their figureheads, right? I think people are extremely naive, or the US government, I should say, is extremely naive if if it thinks, oh yeah, we can just, you know, we just get rid of Maduro and, you know, we're good. Mm -mm, nope. <laughs> these social movements, these communes, these people that are struggling on the ground, they aren't just going to suddenly forget <laughs> all the gains they've made in the past few decades. They aren't going to suddenly forget all the struggling they've done in the last few decades, right? They are, would rise up and fight back, right? Just like what happened in Bolivia in 2019 when, when Evo was cooed, right? And once again, this is why I, this is, you know, circling back, this is why I relate to strong social movements, a strong union movement, right? And tying all of those things together, because that is how you can properly maintain a, 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 you know, a socialist movement that is not only in power, but is actually delivering gains for people, is actually pushing the struggle forward, right? I think that's critically important. Um, and yeah, I, once again, that's a lesson that I don't just draw from Venezuela, but I draw from the 21st century socialists in, in general in Latin America, from the pink tide, whatever we want to call it, right? Since once again, this is something that manifested itself in Bolivia. And as, <laughs> as I saw in Peru, is beginning to manifest itself uh, there as well. Yeah, it's really cool to kind of especially put that put that emphasis on Maduro, Chavez, and so on. You know, they're uh, they are important. They're they're significant um, characters, and they they shape the movement for sure. But you know, you mentioned Bolivia uh, returning um, the MAS to power after uh, Evo was cooed. It's the same in Venezuela, right? Returning um, the uh, the PSUV to power after uh, Chavez was cooed in the in the two thousands. So it's a really good good line. Um, so you know, okay, this might. Uh, rub up against what you were just saying, but maybe not. Well, we'll see. But, you know, the, the Bolivarian Revolution, I think it's so fascinating because it is an example of what democratic socialism could look like, right? You mentioned it's it's not uh, the Cuban model or the Vietnamese model. It is a different kind of model with with all of its own contradictions. Um, but it's, uh, it's not really a model. It seems to me that a lot of people in the U.S. take too seriously, especially people who identify as democratic socialists, even though um, you know, it may it may look quite different in the United States. Nevertheless, uh, this is an experiment that that comes out of some similar sensibilities, perhaps. Uh, what do you think that an organization like the DSA or P 
people who have begun to identify as democratic socialists in the last, you know, five, six years or so could learn from that experiment in Venezuela? Absolutely. Million percent. I love this question. <laughs> this is something I love to say, which is uh, you know, whether people like it or not, you know, people got to acknowledge that the most successful example of a, of a democratic socialist, you know, program or experiment in, in our lifetimes, it happened in Venezuela, right? It, it just like you say, it was Chavez, right? Did Chavez run as like a fire breathing communist? No, he didn't, right? He ran a for all intents and purposes as a democratic socialist and has maintained a, a democratic socialist movement within Venezuela, right? And that movement itself, once again, there are, gosh, there are so many lessons to be drawn here. But I think it's important to recognize that this movement that elected Chavez to power and was able to, to rewrite the constitution of Venezuela, this movement went back decades, right? This movement didn't just start with Chavez. It didn't even just start uh, with his attempted military coup in 1992, right? This was a movement that had been building for decades, right? That it had that it had experienced periods of time where they were forced, you know, underground, you know, during the repression of like the Cold War when you know leftists were targeted, right? This was a uh, you know movements that saw the the worst of uh, well saw the best of the worst of the oil economy, right? After the uh, the oil boom during the 1970s because of the uh, you know the crisis, so to speak, uh, against uh, the United States, um, you know, they saw a booming economy after. Afterwards, during the 1980s, when the price of oil went down, they saw the effects of a, a devastated economy, which unfortunately is happening again in Venezuela. And these people, you know, coalesced in movements such as the Caracaso in, in 1989, right? Stri you know, attacking, uh, you know, rising up, so to speak, against uh, the government, which was, you know, cutting, you know, the social services, which, you know, Venezuelans, you know, they woke up to a world where, even oil itself was uh, insanely expensive, which of course did not make sense to them since Venezuela has so much oil, right? So once again, building these projects within your communities, not just looking at a at a national campaign like like Bernie Sanders or you know let's you know we'll see if AOC decides to run for president one day, who knows, right? But these campaigns need to be accompanied with strong grassroots social movements, with strong unions, right? Because if Bernie, or AOC, right, or, or whoever, right, was ever elected president, my goodness, it would be, you know, a sea change. It would be beautiful, right? I would welcome it. I would support it. But we can't expect them to simply get into office and then, you know, click the socialism button, right? That's simply not how it works, right? If Bernie or any other democratic socialist was elected president, you know, I think people are a bit naive to think that. Okay, all of a sudden, you know, snap of the fingers, now police violence, you know, doesn't exist anymore. It's not how it's going to work, right? There's going to be, there would be a need for broad basis of support on the grassroots level, true institution building, so to speak. And this is why, this is why I'm a member of DSA, right? I see DSA as something that can help facilitate those sorts of things. I see DSA as a social movement in and of itself, right? getting everybody who calls themselves a socialist in one house, right? At least that's the goal, right? And, you know, I, I love the fact that our organization is a multi-tenancy organization. I love the fact that there's people that I can engage with and debate with over, you know, what our DSA delegation did in Venezuela, right? I think that's a beautiful thing, right? To have, to have that sort of ideological struggle. And once again, to, to share the ideas that we all have with each other. Um, I think that's critically important. Um, social movements like that, Right. And, and I know DSA has also done um, 
a lot of work trying to engage with you know the labor movement through the the pro act campaign which has been a beautiful thing right things like that are so critically important right strengthening the union movement strengthening our social movements strengthening our connection to the bases right because the base is where is where true social change happens and is where true socialist movements are built right and that's what i think is one of the biggest lessons from the from uh the from chavez's election right you mentioned the 2002 coup wonderful example right wonderful example if chavez did not have a connection to the bases right if those bases had not spent decades you know building community organizations building you know the you know the things that kind of manifested themselves in in the, you know the fifth republic movement right that coup against chavez probably would have been successful in 2002 right because he wouldn't have had uh, you know a, 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 such a wide base of supporters that came out to to defend him to protect him and to, to protect their gains right to protect their new constitution right so once again having that connection to those bases is so so critically important and i think it's something that we can uh it's one of the many lessons right that we could learn from chavez and more broadly from the other you know quote unquote democratic socialist experiments that have happened in latin america right including you know bolivia of course there's plenty of lessons to be drawn, drawn from bolivia and the example of mas um, but once again just a connection to the bases is, is would be my answer to that yeah that's a really good word um I mean, I'm a DSA member. I see these things uh, as well. And I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. There's a lot of things to uh, be, you know, really excited to be involved in. Um, it, something that we talk about in this podcast every now and again is Marta Harnaker, who is, you know, like one of the, the good, the big political theorists of uh, 21st century socialism. The way that she describes it is that, you know, you need this strong base because uh, a president can only do so much, right? They can do so much and they, they, you need these other institutions, these other bases of power to help you kind of capture the rest of the state. And that's a, a harder task for sure. But yeah, well, it'd be very interesting to see, uh, you know, how DSA <laughs> is up to that challenge in the future of the United States. Well, um, maybe we could, we could turn a little bit here and talk about DSA and, and the International Committee because, uh, well, you're a part of it and the other folks that were on the, um, that went on the trip with you, they were part of it as well. So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about the International Committee? Like, what's it trying to accomplish within DSA? How has the, you know, the DSA responded to it kind of as a whole? What's going on there? Sure. Two things real quick. One, because I can't help myself and have to comment on Marta Harnaker because she is amazing, Please. right? And once again, it is a big inspiration to me, right? And, you know, it's, I'm, uh, you have to quickly point out, you know, look at an example of a left that has not been able to properly connect with, this with its bases, I would argue, Ecuador, right? Where there's been a big disconnect between the, the left and the indigenous communities, right? And look what's happened. They have lost power and they have been struggling to get it back ever since. Now, granted, there's a lot more nuances and, you know, the situation is a bit more complicated there. But to me, once again, I, you know, you look at an example of not properly being in touch with your bases. Anyways, once again, uh, uh, you mentioning Marta Harnaker reminded me of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyways. Um, oh, goodness. The DSA International Committee. Oh, yeah. Where, where do I start? Uh, so. Oh, my goodness. Like I said at the onset, this has been I mean, saying this has been the honor of my life, the privilege of my life would be such a massive understatement right like i can't even like oh gosh i can't even put into words how much this work has has you know meant to me how much once again i'm deeply humbled to have been a part of this right a little bit of uh, prehistory here and a little bit of you know context at the 2019 national convention 
you know, myself, I, I helped co-author a, a resolution that dealt with some, you know, foreign policy issues, specifically anti-imperialism and decolonization. Uh, there were a couple other resolutions that were introduced at the same time regarding, you know, restructuring the international committee and you know, turning it into a committee that, you know, represents, you know, more voices, more members, right? A committee that's opened up to our membership, you know, something that was important to me at the time. Um, these resolutions were all adopted. They were all passed, right? So when I got elected to the NPC, right, the National Political Committee, one of the first things I was thinking was, well, heck, I want to be a part of the process of, you know, implementing these resolutions. I want to help build our international committee into like a, a true, you know, foreign policy wing that can actually, you know, a foreign relations wing even, right, that has actual relations with, you know, political parties across the world that can, you know, <laughs> that can send, you know, delegations abroad and stuff like that, right? This was a long process, you know, it took a long time to, to get us to this point, right? I was deeply honored to be able to do this work alongside, you know, fellow NPC member Blanca Estevez, who uh, I should mention her, myself and a few others are running for NPC re-election on a slate together known as Renewal. Google it, people. Um, or Twitter it maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, and the work we've done in the international committee, like I said, has been the, the the most humbling work of my life. You know, it was a long time coming, these delegations to Peru and Venezuela. One of the directives that was put in one of our one of the resolutions that passed at the 2019 National Convention was putting a focus toward engaging with leftist movements in Latin America and specifically leftist movements of a mass nature, right? A mass movement nature within Latin America, right? So at the beginning of this year, um, you know, I, you know, Blanca and I were discussing ourselves, you know, alongside other members of international committee leadership, you know, different things we could do to, you know, take this international committee to the next level. And, you know, at the time, you know, we, I just mentioned Ecuador, right? At the time there were critical elections going on uh, in Ecuador, right? And, as the elections came and went, you know, I thought to myself, wow, you know, why weren't we able to, to send an election observer delegation? I think it, you know, really would have meant something. Um, simultaneously, the elections in Peru had just passed their first round. And it was clear that the second round of Peru's presidential elections were going to be critically important. So we began the process of coordinating with groups on the ground, coordinating with allies in Peru, coordinating with other friendly international institutions such as the Progressive International and the Party of the European Left and sending like a joint, you know, international left sort of delegation to Peru to observe their presidential elections, right? And once again, these sorts of things would not have been possible without these, you know, re structural reforms that, you know, we had made happen within the International Committee. When I first began my term on the NPC, the International Committee was, for all intents and purposes, a closed committee, right? This was a committee that had, you know, occasional open application intervals, but once again was still a bit of a self-selecting, you know, group that had, you know, not had that had not been opened up to the to a broader scope of our membership. Luckily, and I'm extremely happy and proud to say now our, you know, international committee has, you know, hundreds of members in it, right? There's multiple different, you know, uh, there's different arms of our international committee, right? That take over different aspects of foreign policy, right? Our international secretariat 
which maintains relations with other political parties and is truly like our, our foreign relations arm, right? Our international steering committee, right? Which actually oversees like the actual building of campaigns internally, right? And, you know, something they've been working on recently is the, the syringes for Cuba campaign, right? Which is a beautiful thing, right? Do, you know, our different regional, you know, uh, working groups, right? Which focus on specific, uh, uh, which focus, focus on specific regions and, some of them spoke focused on specific issues, right? Like economics and trade, right? You know, which you know, is critically important for, you know, uh, uh, um, for COVID-19 vaccine distribution, right? Which uh, I know our allies in the Progressive International did an amazing campaign uh, regarding that, right? These sorts of things, you know, to me, fundamentally, all the work that, uh, you know, I've helped do on the International Committee, right? With alongside so many amazing people, right? I can't stress that enough how so many great, great people have been a part of this process and how it wouldn't be possible without them, right? Um, to me, this process has been about taking a committee that was one of the oldest in our organization, taking a committee that had existed for, I believe, over 10 years, right? Taking that committee, which was built at a time when DSA was, you know, a couple thousand members, and broadening out its structures to bring it to a place where now it is it is befitting i would say of an organization that is nearly 100,000 members strong it is up, it is its structures are getting to a place where it is accommodating to our larger membership right now and that's not to say that the international committee is not a work in progress all of our structures within dsa are right all of our structures should be continuing to grow, continuing to, to, to modify itself, continuing to adapt, right, to the conditions that we exist in, right? But still, I think fundamentally getting, like, it is, it's amazing. You know, I mentioned Blanca Estevez a little bit earlier. I remember, you know, having a conversation with her at the beginning of this year saying, you know, something to the effect of, will we even be able to do a delegation to Peru and Venezuela, right? So to be sitting here <laughs> talking about how not, not only did they happen, but they were extremely successful, right, is astonishing to me, right? And once again, I cannot emphasize enough how much work goes into these sorts of things. And once again, how critically important these sorts of things are, right? And like, if, if there's a point that I should drive home that I definitely got from being in Peru and Venezuela, it's how thankful everybody down there was to meet with people from the United States. How, how shocked some of these groups, some of these communes or, or some of these movements in Peru's case, right, that we met with, how shocked these people were to meet us. How, how the, the common reaction was, wow, you, you guys are so from socialists from the United States. That's amazing, right? This is, we're so happy to talk to you guys, right? We're so used to like not having any sort of real connections or engagement to any like larger movements, so to speak, with, within the United States, right? So they were so happy. And once again, it's just a reminder of the importance of this work that our international committee in, engages in, right? The importance of international diplomacy, the importance of, of foreign policy, so to speak. And once again, like I say, this is there's so much we can do better within the international committee. There's so much that I look to do more within our international committee, but without it, doubt it's not even close this is by far the the honor of my life and i'm humbled every moment i get to engage with my fellow uh, members on the international committee whether it's somebody on the steering committee somebody on the secretariat or even absolutely our rank and file members within our working groups which are the the lifeblood of the international committee i, I could not drive home uh, enough how, how proud i am of that committee
Uh, it's really fun to hear you talk about that. I think, you know, the DSA gets some criticisms from the left as well for not being as uh, anti-imperialist as it ought to be, and including on this podcast, <laughs> that has happened. Um, and uh, I, I think that's one of the more salutary things I see coming out of the U.S. left, at least, is is this uh, renewed commitment to building those bridges and apprenticing itself to uh, those lessons. Um, maybe one uh, last question before we give you a chance to plug at the end, since we're reaching the, the end of the hour um, we didn't prompt you this, so maybe you don't have any thoughts off the top of your head, but but perhaps, you know, you've been to Peru and Venezuela uh, on the show where I was talking about Christianity and the left. Um, Peru is, of course, the, the home of Gustavo Gutierrez, one of the fathers of liberation theology in particular. Uh, most Venezuelans are Catholic. There's a long history of uh, liberation theology there. Chavez himself uh, was a Christian and Maduro is often uh, drawing from liberation theology rhetoric. Um, can you tell us anything about that? Did you see any of that on either of your trips? And uh, how do you understand maybe a, a movement like that in terms of bringing together uh, the religious sectors or at least the, the Christian sectors and the political left? Oh, yes, absolutely. These are both Peru and Venezuela are, are deeply, deeply Catholic countries, right? And for sure, you, you would see elements of that everywhere. In the first... Um, Gosh, uh, the I, this is actually our, my second visit to a commune, right? When I went to Benitez de Enero, right, which is uh, where the the panelitos are, right, where Alexis Vive Collective is, right, various different communes. Um, we came there during uh, I'm not sure if it was a holiday or some some sort of celebration, right? There were various dances and singing going on all around a altar, right, all around an altar that had like a like a figure of, of Jesus Christ, right. So these are deeply religious communities these are communities that are not just communities movements that are very much informed and very much inspired by their by movements such as you know liberation theology um these are movements that in many ways well you know i referenced the uh the the building of the social movements and uh, uh, that led to the to the moment of Chavez. I referenced the how these social movements went through periods of of going underground right during the Cold War. In many cases, when these movements went underground during the Cold War, some of the only places they got any you know any place any sympathy from were you know Catholic priests, you know liberation theologians. Now this isn't exactly uh, Venezuela, but the most classic example being, you know, Camilo Torres, right? The priest in Colombia who literally helped, uh, gosh, he either helped found or was one of the first members of the uh, the guerrilla movement, the National Liberation Army, um, and famously died, you know, fighting or whatever. And is like a an iconic figure of liberation theology uh, within the region, right? And this isn't to say, you know, just like with the government or just like any other social movements, this isn't to say that the left in some in some ways or the communities in some ways have occasionally complicated relationships with their local churches right because in some places in latin america the church has also took on you know like a a landowning sort of role right and in some places in latin america the church definitely took on a more conservative tint right so really it depended on you know which sort of uh communities you went to but fundamentally a <laughs> common theme in all of them right was once again a, a connection to the to a lot of the themes that you get in liberation theology, right? Definitely in the case of Peru and Pedro Castillo, right? And you mentioned Gustavo Gutierrez being from Peru. My brain didn't even make that connection literally till you made that sentence. So that's actually a really good point. 
Um, but yeah, definitely in the case of Peru, I would say I, I saw a lot of that. And and it, it, Peru, I think, is a very interesting uh, example because I think a lot of people um, had things to say, right, about maybe Pedro Castillo's uh, more conservative views, right, and people trying to make accusations that maybe these conservative views were inspired by him being, you know, a, a somewhat religious man, right? Here's the thing. When I met with feminist groups in Peru, when I met with members of the gay community in Peru, every single one of them were supporting Pedro Castillo. And not just that, yeah. Pedro Castillo, you know, out of both presidential candidates, right, Pedro Castillo and, and Keiko Fujimori, only one of them had met with members of the gay community, and it was not Keiko mm. Fujimori, right? <laughs> it was Pedro Castillo. So once again, the, to Pedro Castillo, I, I use this example because Pedro Castillo is a great example of, for him, fundamentally, his religion inspires his views on poverty, right? Fundamentally, what he will not waver on is that slogan, right? No mas pobres en un país rico, right? No more poverty in a rich country, right? That's what he will not waver on. And once again, I think it was extraordinarily clear that these views in many ways were informed uh, in part, at least by, by his religion. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's hard to understand the left of Latin America without understanding religion. I mean, kind of for better and for worse, right? It's not just the sure. progressive side, but also the very uh, reactionary side. It's all it's all there mixing around. Um, well, anyways, th this is all really great stuff. I'm learning a lot in this conversation and really enjoying it. Uh, but uh, we've kind of come to the end of the hour here. Uh, is there anything that you'd want to plug here at the end? Absolutely. There's a couple of different things I can plug. <laughs> As I mentioned, for any of my fellow DSA members out there, right, I <laughs> I am running for re-election at our national convention next year. If you know any delegates, if you are a delegate, I'd appreciate the support. And if you do have any questions, you know, for me or my my slate mates, right, Renewal, you can go to dsarenewal.com. Um, if you do have any questions for me, I am uh, on Twitter, right, at Gaius, G-A-I-U-S underscore Gracchus, G-R-A-C-C-H-U-S underscore. Feel free to shoot me a DM, right? DM's open. That, that's how this podcast happened, right? DM's open. DM's always open. <laughs> I'm always happy to have a conversation with people um, and, and literally have a talk about whatever. Um, I also should say I also do a podcast as well. Um, it's called Machete Mate. I do it alongside my brother T and my good friend Leroy. Uh, it's a podcast specifically about covering news events in Latin America in English, right, from a leftist perspective, since sometimes it's hard to, to get that perspective in English. Uh, so that's another uh, uh, another one of my projects. And uh, yeah, once again, fundamentally, I suppose the last thing here, if you're not a DSA member, consider joining <laughs> dsausa.org slash join, since it is an organization I, I, I very much believe in. Cool. Thanks so much for joining us, Austin. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. To go there and uh, support us, uh, there's some cool, great rewards that you get, like uh, access to our Patreon-only Discord channel. Uh, you get an early episode every now and again, and also you get access to a behind-the-paywall uh, current events-ish alternate reality game <laughs> podcast <laughs> um, <laughs> called The Lock-In. And it's a lot of fun. We do a lot of goofy stuff and, and uh, talk about current events as well. Uh, pretty great. Uh, anyways, um, do all those things. And if you can't do those things, that's okay, too. You should just uh, give us a, a nice review on iTunes. That's that's appreciated as well. All right. Uh, our intro music is by Mario Armstrong, and our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. And uh, we'll see you next week. 
I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Lisa, I would have.